Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll be continuing our series in the book of Acts. And uh, if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to look in the chair in front of you. If you look underneath that chair, you'll find a Bible uh, there underneath the chair. And uh, it'll be on page 909 and 910, okay? 909 and 910. I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. I'm going to read through to verse 41, okay? And then uh, we'll pray and we'll consider what God has to say to us from His Word. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we do turn to you now, and we trust you. We trust you with this time. Lord, that you will be with us by your spirit, that you will help us and give us understanding and insight to your word. And then, Lord, that you will even go beyond that in your grace and mercy, go beyond understanding, to actually implanting your word deep in our hearts so that it transforms us and changes us for your glory. So do that, we pray, in these moments. And we ask in faith through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week we saw as we opened up the book of Acts that Jesus had given his, mission, his disciples a mission. And he promised them in giving them this mission that they would not be alone, but that he would send the presence and the power of his spirit to accomplish that mission. Well, this morning in our text, we see the fulfillment of that promise. Our passage can really be summarized in one sentence. If you wanted to say, what, what, is the, what are all these verses, 41 verses, what do they mean? In one sentence, if you wanted a summary, and I think this is a, a helpful summary, and this is, we'll follow, this is what we'll follow this morning. By the Spirit, the church bears witness to Christ. By the Spirit, the church bears witness to Christ. And that's what I want us to consider this morning, and we'll consider it in three parts. First of all, the church... Secondly, the Spirit. And third, Christ. So let's look first of all at the church. By the Spirit, the church bears witness to Christ. Now we're going to be tracing this theme throughout the book of Acts as we walk through this book. But it's the theme of doing mission in community. We see it over and over again in the book of Acts. And here we see it right away. Notice the corporate language that Luke uses in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Look there in the passage and we read, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here you see this corporate language, they, them. And, and, And naturally we'd ask, well, who are they? Who is Luke referring to? Well, no doubt it would be the 12 apostles, but it's even a larger group than that, more than likely. It includes the rest of the 120 disciples that Luke refers to back in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. 
So these 120 disciples, Jesus has ascended to the Father. They've been gathering together, meeting together, praying. And it is upon them that the Spirit falls. This is who uh, Luke is referring to. And so what we see here in these opening chapters is that God is launching His mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And He chooses to indwell and empower not just a person, but a people. And it is through these people, it is through the church that the gospel will go forth and the mission will be accomplished. We'll see this over and over again in the book of Acts. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, one of the implications here is that if you're a Christian this morning, God would have you to be committed to His people. God would have you to be committed to a church, to a community of faith who is on mission together for the sake of the gospel. And my friends, if we get that, that has any number of of effects or implications, ramifications in our own lives, in our understanding of our Christian life. I was thinking of some of these implications or applications this last week, and I'll just mention a few to you. If we got this, that that God would have us to be in community and on mission in community, then perhaps I would view my presence here on a Sunday morning or my presence in a home group during the week as not just for my own spiritual good, but also for the spiritual good of the rest of the community. So it's not just important for me to be here on Sunday morning so that I might benefit for my good, but for the good and the comfort of others who are here. So that I might encourage and serve and bless and comfort them. Because that's part of what it means to be in community. It's not just for me to be fed, but for me to bless others. Perhaps I would no longer be content to simply pray that I would be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I would also, and we would also be eager to pray that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit, us as a church, each one of us. Perhaps I would be convinced that the mission that God has given us as a church, the mission that God has given us as a church to reach our neighborhoods, to reach our communities with the gospel, would not be accomplished simply through me or through the staff here at the church, or the elders or the home group leaders, but through all of us being the church on mission together. Perhaps I'd be eager to invite other members in our community of faith, in our church here, into the opportunities that I have to minister others outside of the church or to minister to those inside the church rather than going it alone and doing ministry by myself. Those are implications that all of us can think about, applications we can make as it relates to this call that God has given to each of us to be in community. I'll just make one more practical application. If you're a Christian and you're not an active member of a local church, then I would prayerfully, I would encourage you to prayerfully consider signing up for our Berean Basics class. We'll be having one next Sunday. There's an opportunity where you can come and learn more about who we are as a church and what we're about, where we're headed. You can learn more about what God is doing here and what it means to be a member of this church. Because listen, my friends, if it's not this church that God would have you to be a member of, if you're a Christian, God would have you to be a member of a church, a local community, and to be in community, on mission together with other Christians. So first of all, we see here in our text the church. And the church is a dominant thing. We'll see it over and over again in the book of Acts. Secondly, we see the Spirit. So by the Spirit, the church bears witness to Christ. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? We could give a quick theological answer. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Godhead is 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the triune God that's presented to us in the Bible. But what I want us to ask is, what do these verses specifically tell us about the person of the Holy Spirit? There's a number of things we could say, but right away we notice here in our text that there are two symbols which serve as an outward demonstration of the Spirit's presence and power. Each one of these symbols tells us something about the Spirit. The symbols there that you see are wind and fire. Wind and fire. Notice, first of all, wind. Look there in verse 2, and we read these words. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, it's interesting here because both the Old Testament word, which is ruah, and the New Testament word, penuma, that is translated wind or breath, is also translated spirit. So those are the two words. In the Old Testament, it's ruah. In the New Testament, it's penuma. And they can be translated either wind, breath, or spirit. You have to know, you have to determine which one it is by context. So it's not surprising that at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God makes His presence known, He makes His presence known with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now what does this tell us about the Spirit of God? When the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Spirit of God or the wind, the breath of God, is a source of life. There's all kind of passages we could point to to make this point, but let me just give you one example from the life and ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 3... Jesus is speaking to a religious leader named Nicodemus, and he tells him that he must be born again. And so, naturally, the question arises, well, how how can Nicodemus be born again? How will he receive new life? And Jesus, in particular, has the idea of spiritual life in mind, not physically being born again, but spiritually being born again. And Jesus answers, he will be born again. If he is born again, he will be born again by the Spirit of God, by the wind of God, which is, in fact, the symbol Jesus uses to refer to the Spirit of God who gives life. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus uses the, the symbol of wind as a reference to the Spirit, and it's by that wind, it's by that breath of the Spirit that we are given new spiritual life. So why is it significant that the Spirit of God outwardly demonstrates His presence by the sound of a mighty rushing wind? Because it's by the wind of God's life-giving breath that God imparts life. It's by the life-giving breath of the Spirit of God that we are open, our eyes are open to the reality of our own sin and the glory of God and our need for Christ, and we are saved. And that's just what happened at Pentecost, right? The disciples had been given a mission, but they were not alone. God had sent them the Holy Spirit to indwell them and to empower them. And when the wind of God's Spirit breathed on 3,000 souls that day, they were saved. So this is why we should desire the presence and the filling of God's Spirit in our church and among us. Because it's by God's Spirit that men are given life and the mission is accomplished. And without that Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, without the, His breath, without the life-giving breath of the Holy Spirit, there is no hope for spiritual awakening in life. The second symbol that's used here to refer to the Holy Spirit is fire. You see it there in verse 3. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, what's the significance of fire? There's a number of things we could say here as we look at the scriptures and how the symbol of fire is used. But I want to point out that fire symbolizes the presence of God in the Bible. Again, there's a number of passages we could point to, but let me just point you to one that's fairly well known. It's in Exodus chapter 19, and God is revealing himself to Moses and to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, we get a description of what takes place there. And we read, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Now, this image of of Mount Sinai and even going back to the burning bush, you remember Moses saw the burning bush and the Lord spoke to him out of the burning bush, but the bush was not consumed, but it it was a flame, it was like on fire. It is these passages that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. And so why should we desire for God's presence to be among us, to visit us, to fill us? Well, think about it. Think about what happened here in context. You remember when Jesus ascended to the Father, one of the great concerns that the disciples had was that they would be left all alone. Who would be with them? Jesus would no longer be with them. That was their fear. But Jesus assured them, don't be worried. I will send my spirit. And by my spirit, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. Friends, Jesus is present among us, and the fire was a symbol of that. Jesus is present among us in the person of His Spirit. And if we embark on the mission that God has given us, we will never be alone. This mission will not be easy. It will be very difficult at times, and we will see that through the book of Acts as the church is persecuted and harassed and even martyred at times. But we will never be alone. The mission may be hard, We may feel lonely at times, but God will never leave us as He has sent His Spirit. He is with us and will never leave us or forsake us. So, we've seen the church, the Spirit, and then third, let's consider Christ. By the Spirit, the church bears witness to Christ. Now, we said last week as we were considering Acts chapter 1, that the work of the Spirit is to point to Christ. That's the ministry, that's the work of the Spirit, is to point to Christ. And here it is again, the Spirit comes down upon the church, and the church goes out. The church goes out to bear witness to Christ. So we could say it this way, the Spirit in, the church out, bearing witness to Christ. And as the Spirit comes upon them, and as they begin to bear witness for Christ, you notice that something miraculous occurs. The disciples begin, you see this in verse 4, they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now the word translated tongues there is glossa. It can be translated tongues or languages. And in this context, the sense of the word is clearly languages. We could say the Spirit empowered them to speak in other languages. Luke tells us this very directly from the text. Let me set it up for you, and then I'll show you the the verses. Luke tells us that this is the time of Pentecost. Pentecost was a a, a significant Jewish festival in which Jews from all over the world gathered together in Jerusalem to worship God. And so all these Jews were gathered together in Jerusalem. They were from all over the Roman Empire. They spoke different languages because they were from different places. 
And Luke makes it clear here in our text that the miracle that happens here is that the disciples were enabled by by the Spirit to speak in the various languages in which all these diverse in which all these diverse people spoke. So look there in verse seven. Here it is. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? You see it there. And then he lists the various places they're from, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. Here it is again. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, all of these folks would have been predominantly Jewish But the universal nature, because they're all gathering together for this religious festival, right, which was Jewish in nature, but the universal nature of what is happening here is clearly communicated. This is just the beginning of the mission in that sense. And in Acts 1-8, Jesus gives them the mission that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is still in Jerusalem. All of this is taking place in Jerusalem. But even in this initial stage... It is clearly communicated that this gospel and this Jesus is for all nations and all languages and all peoples. This gospel will go to the ends of the earth. This will be an international community that stretches across national boundaries or ethnic boundaries. And all peoples will be gathered to Jesus through this gospel. At this point, all the disciples, the 120 or so disciples, have been speaking to those around them and bearing witness to Christ. We can imagine this, was, this must have been quite a scene. And people are taking note of this as, as they recognize that these folks are speaking in languages that they inherently do not know themselves. And so there needs to be an explanation. And Peter, who was the chief of the apostles, stood up to address the gathering as a whole. And then Peter preaches the first of many sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts, as he continues to bear witness to Christ. There's so many things we could say about Peter's sermon, but let me just point out a few things. Right away, we notice that Peter's sermon is biblical. If you look at the sermon as a whole, so the sermon starts in around verse 14, and it goes really almost through all of the verses that we read, all the way to uh, verse 40, really. If you look at the sermon as a whole, the sermon is structured around three Old Testament passages of Scripture. So basically what happens, if, if you look at the structure of the sermon, is that, that Peter cites an Old Testament passage of Scripture, then he gives an exposition or an explanation of that passage, then he cites another Old Testament passage of Scripture, he gives an expo- explanation or expo- exposition of that passage, then he cites another Old Testament Scripture, he explains that passage, and then he gives application at the end. In fact... Twelve verses of Peter's sermon are Old Testament citations. Eleven verses are explanations of those citations. And then two verses at the very end are application. Now, why do I point that out? Because it's evident when we examine Peter's sermon in this way, it's evident that Peter's sermon was thoroughly biblical. When Peter stand up to preach, he preached the Bible. And faithful preaching is biblical preaching. And faithful gospel witness is faithful biblical gospel witness. You know, it's Peter who would later write in a letter that he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He wrote, 
regarding the Scriptures, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see the connection between those two things? The Spirit and the Word? The Word of God is the product of the Spirit of God. How did we get the Bible? How did we get the Word of God? Well, the Scriptures are pretty clear about this. There's a number of places we could turn to. The Spirit of God moved upon those who were authors of Scripture and empowered them to write the words of God. And the Spirit, as a result, loves the Word of God. The Spirit loves the Bible because the Spirit is the source of the Word of God. So there is no dichotomy between these two things, the Spirit and the Word. You know, you might be here this morning, you might be tempted to say, you know, I I see myself as a rather spiritual person, but I'm not really into that Bible stuff. Do you understand that that's a contradiction? According to the Scriptures, that's a contradiction. If you're into the Spirit, then like the Spirit, you'll love the Word. Maybe you're here this morning, you have a sentiment, you know, I want to I want to attend a service that is spirit-led. Maybe you've heard people talk that way before, which might mean, if you press it a little bit deeper, go light on the Bible stuff and heavy on inspiration and emotion. But do you see the connection here in this passage? Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and so he preaches the Bible, right? And those two things are inextricably linked. Where the Spirit is... The Bible will be treasured. The Bible will be loved. The Bible will be proclaimed. Because the Spirit of God is the source of the Word of God. So Peter's preaching is biblical. Notice also that Peter's sermon is focused on Christ. This is interesting because if you consider Peter's sermon in light of the context of what's taking place, in chapter 1 verse Uh, In chapter 2, verse 4, we read that the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in various tongues or languages, right? And then Peter stands up in the midst of this powerful demonstration of the Spirit of God and people are wanting an explanation for what's happening. I mean, some people think they're drunk. I mean, they don't know what's going on. What is happening here? And so Peter is standing up. They're wanting an explanation of what is happening and the Spirit of God has just fallen upon the church, And at this point, as James Boyce actually points out in his commentary, we might expect that Peter would preach a sermon on the person of the Holy Spirit. And there are many places in Scripture that speak of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's entirely appropriate. But instead, what we see here is that Peter takes just a moment to cite a passage from Joel, the prophet Joel, explaining the activity and the presence of God's Spirit, what's happening. So he gives a quick explanation of that. And then in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. And the first words that come out of his mouth are Jesus of Nazareth. And then the rest of Peter's sermon, the overwhelming majority of Peter's sermon, is a proclamation of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, where the Spirit of God is truly present, Jesus will be made much of. In fact, this is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit points to Jesus. The Spirit has been sent to point to Jesus, to empower us to witness to Jesus. As Jesus said, He would send His Spirit so that His disciples might be witnesses of the Spirit. No, be witnesses to Him. And what did Peter say about Jesus? 
Well, notice here in our passage, he presented the work of Jesus in four stages. We'll hit these very quickly. First, the life of Jesus in verse 22. Peter reminds the crowd that it's by mighty works and wonders and signs, miracles, that God affirmed Jesus' identity and message. Second, the death of Jesus in verse 23. Despite Jesus' good works, this Jesus was crucified at the hands of lawless men. However, Peter ensures his audience that Jesus' death was no accident. It was not ultimately caused by man, but was a part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. Third, so life, death. Third, Peter speaks of the resurrection of Jesus in verses 24 to 32. And this is really where Peter spends most of his time, right? Proclaiming and defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is who he says he is and that he accomplished what he had set out to do. So the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then fourth, the ascension and exaltation of Jesus in verses 33 to 36. Peter says Jesus lived, he died, he was raised from the dead, and now he sits at the right hand of God on high. In fact, Peter offers the present events, what was taking place that day, as evidence of Jesus' continuing work. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, had poured out His Spirit on His people, and those present were witnessing Jesus' present activity. And now comes the application. It's clear and it's direct. The whole sermon has really been building to this point. You notice that the... the, uh, the movement of the sermon. Peter is exalting Christ over and over again. This Christ, Peter says, was sent by God. This Christ did miraculous works that were attested to. And you yourselves, as he's speaking to that first century audience, you yourselves have heard of this. This Christ was killed unjustly and raised from the dead. He is the Davidic king, the Messiah, who now sits exalted at the right hand of God in verse 36. And this Jesus you crucified. And listen, they knew it was true. Some of them would have been in Jerusalem, perhaps, when Jesus himself was actually crucified. Others would not have been in Jerusalem. They would have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But they knew, whether directly or indirectly, they had all played a role, that they were a part of a world and a system that was naturally opposed to God and to Christ. As we understand the gospel now, we understand as well that each of us play a role in the death of Jesus because it was sin ultimately that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus had come to die for sinners. He had come to take our sin and our judgment and our penalty. So we all, in various ways, play a role in his death. They knew it was true, and we know they knew it was true because we see in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. Friends, you want evidence of the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit? There it is. They didn't pick up stones to stone Peter, right? But they were cut to the heart. He says, you killed him. And they're humbled and broken. That's the work of the Spirit. They accepted the accusation. They knew that it was true. They knew they had a role to play in the death of Jesus, that their hands had the blood of Jesus on them. They knew it. And then of all things, as a representative of Jesus Christ, Peter turns to them and he offers them what? Forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? There's the power of the gospel. You killed him. And you can be totally forgiven by his death. 
And not only does he offer them forgiveness, but he offers them the promise of the Holy Spirit whose presence and power they themselves are witnessing all around them. They were conscience stricken. They were heavy with guilt. And of all things, Peter offers them forgiveness and all the promises of the gospel that were purchased by the very death that they themselves brought about in Jesus. This is the glory of the gospel. The worst of sinners are offered complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus died. He died to die in our place for our sins and take our condemnation. Now what must they do? Well, you see it there in the text. They ask. I mean, they're stricken to the heart. They're convicted. They realize they're sinners in need of God's mercy. And they ask, what shall we do? And then in verse 38, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Repentance means to turn from your sin. So it's not just an acknowledgement of sin. It's not even just a remorse related to sin. But it's a turning from sin. It's an attitude of the heart that says, I've been my own Lord, but now I yield to Jesus as Lord. I turn from my own way and I turn towards Jesus and I yield to him and I submit to him. Repentance, understand, is no way. It is not perfection. Every Christian still struggles with sin and even struggles with sin deeply. But repentance is a change in the disposition of our heart in which we now acknowledge and honor Christ as Lord. And we take his side against our sin rather than taking sides with our sin against him. And then Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is so apparent as we read through the rest of the book of Acts that baptism never saves anyone. Baptism is an outward expression of our faith in Christ. Baptism is an opportunity, as we'll have a number of folks coming this morning to do so, and we rejoice with them. Baptism is an opportunity to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus and to profess that His death and His resurrection are our only hope of salvation. So baptism is an outward symbol of an inward reality that's taking place in our hearts. It's an outward expression of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's it. Repent and believe. Confess Jesus as Lord and yield to Him. He will be my master. And trust Him as Savior. He took my sin and He's the only one who can save me. And the promise of the gospel is you will be saved. You will be forgiven of your sins. All of them. Past, present, future. And you will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And He will change you. For the glory of God. They did it. You see it there in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day. About 3,000 souls. It's an amazing and demonstrable work. Of the spirit that first day. At Pentecost. As the church was born. And we know that it was only the beginning. Because from that day until now. By the Spirit, the church has borne witness to Christ. And from that day until now, God has been saving souls and building His church. And He continues to do so even today. This happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Here we are, room full 
almost full, in Evans, Georgia, gathered to worship this Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. My friends, let us, all be, let us be all in. As Christ has called us to this mission, let us be all in on this mission. Depending on His Spirit, living and doing mission and community, and sharing Christ with others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray right now for your spirit to move and to work. Lord, we confess that this word we've considered this morning can easily be forgotten. It have no effect in our lives. But Lord, we pray against that by faith, trusting in the power of your spirit. And we pray that your spirit would take this word now and implant it in our hearts. Help us to be a people who are dependent upon your spirit, crying out for the presence and power of your spirit in our lives on a daily basis. Help us to be a people who live in community with the church, this church, this community that you have brought together through your son, Jesus. And help us to be on mission, loving others and serving others and sharing Christ with others. Lord, we thank you for the brothers who are coming now to give testimony to Christ and his work in their lives. We pray that we would rejoice with them. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.